Are you ready to begin your journey out of the realm of just theories and into a world of excitement and experience that only comes with braving the unknown? Join us as we speak to entrepreneurs who have faced the challenges of successfully creating businesses at home as well as abroad. Whether it's arts, services, or tech, from Shanghai to Tokyo, Bangkok to Mumbai, we'll help you find your inspiration and turn it into action. Get ready for Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now welcome your host, Neville J. McKenzie. Today's conversation is with Wilson Chu. Wilson is a user experience designer with a varied background that revolves around the power of the story. He is also a co-founder and content strategist of Reassembly, a startup which came into existence in March 2018. In previous roles, Wilson has worked as a digital marketer and charity fundraising coordinator, where he made use of stories to influence and change behaviours of the target audience. Now he approaches stories from a different angle, when helping entrepreneurs and SMEs to develop their user application interfaces. He believes every user has a story, built from their needs, frustrations, behaviours and the ways of thinking. His job is to create digital designs that cater to users' stories and resonate with them. I think when people hear that we're a user experience design agency, they think we're just there to, again, we're just there to make things look really nice, well, which we can do. But then we tell them that um, we're not here to make things look nice. During our conversation, Wilson reveals the fundamentals of user experience design, its purpose and the benefits it brings when carried out correctly. So now, without further delay, let's begin. I'm with Wilson. Wilson, can you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Wilson. So I'm currently a co-founder and content strategist at a user experience design consultancy called Reassemble. I used to be a digital marketer, used to be a copywriter as well. I like food, I like eating, so I have a food blog. What is a user experience designer? Okay, this is a little bit difficult to explain sometimes. I like. I think my favorite analogy is to compare. Think of a think of a digital product like a house, and we are kind of the architects. So how do we go about this uh, user experience design? Is when we encounter a digital product. So for example, if you want to create a shopping website, an e-commerce website. How most people would go about the design is, you know, they would uh, either use a platform like Shopify, for example, or they will hire a designer. And the key goal of the designer will be to make things look good. You know, so they'll come out with a website and they're like, oh, this website is brilliant. It's, it's pretty. It's so nice. And everything, all the colors are really nice. And, and then they stop that. User experience design goes a little bit further. So it's actually a discipline that started in the late 80s with a group of American designers. So amongst them is this guy called Don Norman. He's 80-something now, and he's still one of the pioneers in the field. And uh, what they said was, so what, what they were advocating is a design that's centered around the user. So instead of just saying, you know, how do we make something more pretty, or how do we make something more, you know, stand out, right? We think we first go and ask the user what exactly they need, and we, pro- and we provide it to them. I guess an example I can give is of a time when we were designing a movie app. And... Uh, it, it, it seems like the most obvious thing, right? You, you just design a way for us to watch, to, to buy tickets and then we go to the cinema and that's it, right? But then we did some research and we found out that people think of movies in, in very different ways. 
you know, so there are people who just want to watch a movie. They don't mind watching it alone, but they want to watch it quickly. So for them, it's more about where the cinema is. Right? And that's the only question they have when they go to the app. For others, it's more like, I'm going to watch with friends. And when I'm watching with friends, we need to watch the right film. It's not about the cinema. We can meet somewhere. We can meet anywhere. But we have to find the right film. So, you know, just from this simple example of a, a, a cinema going up, you know, you already have so many variations on what people are looking for. And those are the things that we find out and design for. Our belief is that, you know, when you design apps and websites around these needs, instead of based around what you think is cool, those apps tend to be more successful. Yeah, and this is actually something that's been proven in a lot of studies and research. Yeah. I've heard of Don Norman. Yes. And... Um the thing I remember about his book yeah. was he described um, a doorknob. <laughs> and when you approach a door, you should instinctively know whether you push the door or yes. whether you pull it. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you're, what you're saying is you do a similar thing for the... For digital, for the digital world. For computers. Yes. For mobile phones, for applications. For yeah. Would you use physical objects or is it mainly the digital space? You see, that's the, I think that's the interesting thing, which is that in, for physical objects, there has, this, this discipline has actually been around for decades. You know, when we talk about things like ergonomic chairs, um, that's basically user experience design for chairs. It's, you know, we need to figure out a way to sit that fits the human body. That's how it's comfortable. Um, so I think what's really happening in, in the field right now that's really interesting is that user experience is us trying to translate these, uh, this knowledge that we have from the real world of how to design things in the real world into a digital space. And the fact is that so many people are entering it. It's such a new space. It's only been around for 20, 20 years maybe. Yeah. Um, that we're still trying to figure it out. So yeah, imagine if we had a completely new group of objects that we had to design. That's kind of where we are right now. So yeah, that example is a good one. I think in, uh, another example that Don Norman, that Norman actually put up in his uh, uh, Twitter account the other day was about, um, you know, the Hawaiian missile alert. So someone accidentally set off an alert and everyone thought they were going to die in Hawaii. So about, for about 40 minutes, it was just blackout, right? He managed to get a screenshot. I don't know how, but he managed to get a screenshot of what the screen looked like. And uh, uh, that was classic bad design. So like you said, you know, if... This is very important for me. If I want to actually send an alarm to tell everyone in Hawaii that a missile is coming, you know, then as you say, I need to instinctively be able to understand which is the right button to press. It probably should be flashing red, probably should be really bright and big. And, the, the, and conversely, the button to say that this is just a drill shouldn't be next to the button that's for the real thing. You know, so I, I, there's no mistake as to which one I should be pressing. Now, in the screenshot that, that Norman showed us, every rule was broken, right? The, there were no buttons at all. It was a list of text options on the screen. The option for saying this was a drill was right above the option for saying that this was a real missile, right? And there was simply no, um, there was simply nothing, nothing much to mark out that, you know, if you press something, uh, what exactly was the message that I was going to send, which is what, uh, which is what actually happened in Hawaii. Like, you know, even the, the person who was in charge of the disaster response, he didn't know that someone had pressed the button saying a missile was coming until he saw the message himself. You know, so, I mean, yeah, it, it was just a disaster all around. But, but the, the whole point is that in digital design, in user experience design, we try to make sure that these things don't happen. 
you know, we try to make sure that, as you say, so things are clear, understandable, um, they're actionable, so we know what it's about, we know what we need to do, and then if it's something we want to do, we do it quickly. Yeah. Uh, and that, that generally propels the whole, yeah, that's generally how the flow goes. Do you think that most entrepreneurs that are creating apps and applications mm -hmm. for computers or for mobile phones, do you think it's an area that they handle well or do you think it's an area that they neglect? I think it really depends uh, from country to country and market to market. I would say probably the state of knowledge is most advanced in Europe. My, my mentor, he recently went to Stockholm and uh, it's quite funny because when he went to Stockholm, he went to the airport. The first thing he saw was a, a big, a big one-way mirror, right? So there was a room behind that. And under, underneath that, there was just a sign saying like, um, user observation in progress to improve your customer experience. Everyone was just walking past it. So, so no, no one was, no one cared. And what, what he was amazed was that, you know, um, the Swedish people or people who were in the airport at the time, they, they thought of user experience design as such a natural thing that no one even thinks of this as a curiosity anymore. They consider it as just something that any airport should be doing. You know, if you're running an airport, then of course you should be caring about the people who are going through the airport. You know, obviously. And uh, that seems obvious, I think, but in, in a lot of, uh, I guess in a lot of other areas, especially in Asia, it's relatively not as developed. Um, a lot of people are interest, interested in UX. Uh, so as you say, you know, in, in Singapore, as the entrepreneur scene is rising and as more startups are coming up, uh, there are a lot of people who say, yes, we want to do UI, UX, we want to do this. Um, but I think the, the state of knowledge is not quite there yet. So in Singapore, I think uh, uh, the enthusiasm is definitely there. But the enthusiasm often cools off because what we say is UX design is often what they don't uh, something that they don't expect. What's the difference between what you say and what, what they think? What's happening is in Singapore, the idea of design is so ingrained into the idea of uh, making things pretty. So, you know, we have, we, we have always had graphic designers. We have always had uh, creative directors and art directors and all very skilled people, right? That I think when people hear that we're a user experience design agency, they think we're just there to, again, we're just there to make things look really nice. Well, which we can do, but then we tell them that um, we're not here to make things look nice. And I think that's really the part where, which uh, is the least expected. So what we tell them is always, uh, we're not here to make things look nice. But more importantly, I think it's, it's, a, it's a lesson that takes a long time to learn, is that we're not designing for ourselves. We don't propose something because we think it's wonderful. And we definitely don't propose something because we think the entrepreneur, our client, thinks it's wonderful. Because the fact is that in UX design, this doesn't matter, right? Like if you're creating, like if you're creating an app to do bicycle ride sharing, it doesn't matter to me because I don't really ride bicycles, you know, and, and probably neither does the boss because you know, he's probably got a car. The people we're really going to design for, the people who will really matter are the people who ride the bicycles. And if they don't find it to be useful for them, the app fails. It's just as simple as that. So that, that is the thing, I think that's the thing that's been quite challenging to explain to people these days. But uh, I'm pretty confident that the state of knowledge will slowly increase from now. So what's the most difficult thing about changing people's uh, perceptions? I would say it's the perception that uh, research is not particularly necessary or that research is uh, too time consuming. 
I think uh, a lot a lot of people get put off by that. So uh, a lot of people would say things like, you know, oh, the app needs to be out by next month. We don't have the time to do research, uh, which is an understandable sentiment. But I think what 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 I would say in counter uh, as a counter to that is that it is probably better to delay the app's launch for a month in order to make sure that people think it's good than to launch it on time and to find out that people don't like it or people won't use it. Uh, and this is actually something that, that, that has been shown in a lot of, uh, has been borne out in a lot of studies of uh, startup ecosystems as well. We know, for example, that about half of the work that coders do, so you know, coding is always a very important part of startups. Everyone is hiring coders and all that. But what we don't realize is that uh, about half of the work they do is rework. In other words, we launched the app, didn't really work out, we're taking it back, we're doing it again, and then we send it out. So what UX, what, what UX design helps to do is uh, we help to catch these errors before the launch. Uh, and it's a lot easier to fix these errors before the launch. Another interesting tidbit, I think, is that um, if, a, if an error takes $1 to fix in the design phase, it often takes about $10 to fix in the coding phase, and it takes $100 to fix in the post-launch phase. So why does it cost so much to change? Yeah, so why does it cost so much to change? Maybe you can go back to the analogy of the house again, right? What I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, startup entrepreneurs, you know, because they're, they're full of drive and they're full of energy, and what they, I would consider what they do to be like, we'll build a house without planning it, so we just get a bunch of contractors in and we'll just build the house. And think about it like, so imagine that you've built the house, you've, you've, you've laid the floorings and you've set up the walls, and then you suddenly realize you forgot to put in the toilet. Yeah. Right? Or maybe you put in one toilet when they were like, you need two. Okay, so what are you going to need to do to fix that? You're going to need to basically build another room, probably change a lot of plumbing, and, um, you know, change a lot of plumbing, put in, take another room, um, probably move a few rooms around because you need the space and all that. So, so that is where the $10 comes in. Whereas if, you, if we had drawn out the app, which is part of what UX design is all about, we, we plan it out. And then we show people and we make sure that they think it makes sense. So if, you had, if we go about it in, the, in our approach, what will probably happen is we will sketch out the house, we will show someone, and then they will say, needs another toilet. There's only one toilet here. Right? And when it's, because it's still on paper, that's really easy. We'll just be like, okay, sure. We'll just draw out another toilet then. And then when we build it, we make sure we don't screw up that. So that's where, so that's where the $10 comes in. And I think as for the $100 that happens post-launch, um, I think a lot of that actually comes from the idea of first impressions. So uh, it's a well-known thing in a lot of startups that the drop-off rate of uh, apps tends to be about 75%. So people will download the app, they'll use it for about five minutes, and 75% of people are lost after that. Um, that percentage fluctuates considerably um, according to the user experience of the app, naturally. right? And uh, that's where the $100 comes in. So. To go back to the analogy, imagine you build an entire block of these flats with only one toilet and you put them out of the market and nobody buys them, right? That's, that's all the money you lost because you forgot to put in toilets during the planning phase. You know, and that's, that's the kind of thing that we could fix in a sketch, just like that. Well, it would also seem that if you publish an app mm -hmm. and then people download the app, in many cases they've paid for the app, that they've actually purchased the house they're living in the house and then they realize there's no toilet. <laughs> in which case they have to move out and they have, you have to pay rented accommodation. 
Yes, and it would be a disaster as well. Yeah, as, big, as, yeah, as, because, well, a very big disaster. Yeah, yeah. Word of mouth would go around that this company can't build houses. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they don't know such a simple thing as putting in the toilet, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a disaster for the company. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's that's a great that's a great analogy as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, people try to get around that nowadays by building apps that are free to download, and then you pay only when you're inside the app. Um, the same thing applies, mm. as, as you said. Yeah, so I totally so agree with that. Would it be better to release a simpler version of an app and then add complexity to it? rather than trying to release a very complex app and get it right in order to create a big impression? So. Yeah, so that, that's actually a, a very interesting question. So in, in, I think in like startup speak, there's this thing called the minimum viable product. Um, and you know, everyone, a lot of people talk about you know, how we're gonna build the MVP and launch the MVP and all that. Um, I think recently this term has been encountering a bit of pushback. So, People are saying, you know, like, don't build a minimum viable product because, as you say, right, it probably would be quite ugly and quite basic, um, and people might not like it. Uh, personally, I, I think building, a, I think there's nothing wrong with building a minimum viable product uh, for testing purposes. The, the, the important thing is more going to be the kind of insights you get from, from people using the app and telling you what works and what doesn't. Um, and also telling you like what else they need from the app. You know, it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's great that you've built this thing, but maybe you could add something else. And you know, that's, that's how we derive a new direction. So I think that's, that's, that's where I would stand, is that I would, I would say it's probably better to consider the most basic things that your users need to do, and then support them in those tasks first and then try to expand from there. But of course, in order to do that, you would have to research the users. You have to know what it is that is top priority for them, and that becomes top priority for you. Yep. So can you just give a brief history of your background? Just tell us your sort of origin story, how you start <laughs> as a user experience designer. Right. What, was, what was the beginning? Yeah, I think uh, like Spider-Man, I was bitten by a user designer, user experience designer first when I was a kid. <laughs> no. I graduated from the London School of Economics with a degree in international relations. That didn't really work out. I think I, I was learning about it and it got a bit too depressing for me. And I was like, I'm, I'm more going into the, the digital marketing side. When I was in London, I joined a digital marketing agency, working with them to, to create campaigns for companies like Samsung and, and Rolex. And the 20, 2008 Olympics, actually, because they were... Uh, the 2012 Olympics, because they were, that was happening in London the year after. So that lasted for a year, and then I went to a charity called Anti-Slavery International. Actually, quite a lot of... Quite a bit of my marketing experience has been slightly unconventional. I was working more in charities. So in London, I was working with Anti-Slavery. When I came back to Singapore in 2013, I was working with um, the Children's Society as a fundraising coordinator as well. And I think that's where I started having like this epiphany that as a fundraiser, of course, my job was to get people to give us money, right? Makes sense. But increasingly, I was coming to this realization that if we wanted people to give money to us, we were going to have to make it worthwhile for them, which is an interesting thing in the charity because we're not selling anything. And eventually, it, it came to the point where we were thinking, you know, how do we craft a compelling story? How do we make this thing our, the, the, the product, so to speak, that people actually buy when they donate? And that's when I started moving more towards more out of marketing and more into like user research. 
that's when I started launching a few initiatives of my own to talk to the donors and see what, what it is they really wanted to hear from us. And after that, that's when it, yeah, that's when I went more into UX. So I, I, I first heard about it, this term in probably about 2015. And I was thinking, that sounds like what I'm interested in. It's more about like, so enough about what I want as the marketer, right? What do you want as the donor or the buyer or the user? And then given what you want, I'll see what I can provide and I'll support you as best as I can. So I took a course in that uh, in 2016 with a school called General Assembly. And after that, I became an instructional facilitator for them. So I was teaching, I'm still teaching now actually. Then in March, I started this company. Yeah, so I would say my experience has been kind of like not completely aligned, but partly aligned to user experience so far. So do you have to know how to code? Is coding a part of what you do? Um, I would say awareness of code is and, and knowing roughly how it works is a, is a good start. I can read HTML, like I, I know what it is about. I can read CSS. I would say coding itself is not really necessary. And sometimes it can be a little bit counterproductive. It's a matter of expectations. So if, you're, if you are a UX designer, then the expectations are clear. You're here to provide for us the blueprint of what happens next. And these, so often what happens is our deliverables are the prototypes and the wireframes and the layouts that then get sent to the developer. What's and a wireframe? So a wireframe is um, a little bit like a screen that shows the layout of where everything is on the screen. So if you ask me to build a website, you know, I'll be like, so what do you need on the website? And then after that, where does everything go? You know, and that's the wireframe. So we normally use these as our most basic guidelines. So think of them a little bit like the sketches of an architect, basically, you know, where the rooms are, where the space is. And then um, those are the things that we then hand over to the developer and they build it. I think it's great if people know how to code, always, no matter what else you're learning. But I think sometimes in, in UX design, it's good to resist the temptation to say, I could build that straight away. It's not so much that coding is not useful, it's just that it's a, it's a mental habit that can be a bit difficult to break for coders. Sometimes what we really need is to take a step back instead and think like, okay, does this actually make sense to people who are deciding for and then asking them? Yeah, so testing is definitely an important part of things as well. Since you've started your company, mm -hmm. what has been your biggest challenge? Wow. Um, biggest challenge has been persuasion, really. Yeah, so that, that links up a lot to, to, to what we talked about earlier. I think uh, people want it. Our clients, they, they want it. They know a little bit about it. But a lot of it has been about educating them, uh, which is something that we're very happy to do, of course, and then trying to align their expectations with our own. And I mean, some, some, some have called it like, oh, they don't know what's going on. I, I think it's a bit more benign than that. I think it's just that in Singapore, a lot of startup entrepreneurs do come from a marketing background or from like a sales background. And so their first instinct, which is a very helpful instinct if you're in marketing, is, you know, what's the story? How do we sell this? How do we, you know, how, how do we how do we make people like this? You know, and often the answer to that is, you know, pretty things, you know, pretty things, shiny things, gorgeous, wonderful, purple things, you know, and 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 that that's great. But UX kind of takes a slightly different tack, and I often think it's this mismatch of expectations that has been a lot of a challenge for us. We have shown wireframes to potential clients before, and their first reaction would be like, what that, what that's all you're doing. <laughs> which it kind of is, it kind of is all we're doing, but then we, we then show them the three weeks of research that go into making that wireframe. And I think it helps to convince them a little bit. Some people may find it a challenge to think that research is important, 
Alternatively, they may feel that the research is a bit too expensive and time-consuming for them. How do you conduct that research? Um, there are a series of techniques. It could be something as simple as just observing people using the app. Uh, so that's what we would call contextual inquiry. We inquire in the context that they're using it. So therefore, contextual inquiry. Um, there are also user interviews. So these user interviews tend to not take place with any app or anything. So that's when we just look at the needs themselves. To take the example of the movie app that we talked about just now, you know, um, we just want to find out how people think of movies. What was the last time they watched a movie? Do they watch with friends? What do they look out for? When they open an app or when they go to a cinema, what is the thing that frustrates them most? You know, uh, what are the things they often do in, in addition to watching movies? Yeah, so for example, uh, we realized that snacks were both the main source of revenue for cinemas nowadays because ticket margins are just really low. And they're also a very important part of the movie experience. Like people, they don't have to buy snacks, but most people do because it's just the right thing to do. And therefore that would affect the design of the app itself. I think another major component of what we do is usability testing. So usability testing is we take a, we take a design or an app or website and we try to figure out how well it performs for a user. So we set a series of tasks, like the things that a user needs to do, and then we watch someone do it. And we, we ask them questions along the way. So we ask them things like, you know, was this what you expected when you click on this button? Do you see the button, the right button to click? You know, and when you click on it, it's like, okay, does, does this make sense to you? Right? Do you reckon it's too long or too short? And then we also look at their expressions and we measure how long it takes for them to figure things out. Those are all the metrics that become the data for, for our designs. I know there are a number of companies that offer off-the-peg apps. So you go to them and they'll create an app for you yeah. and then you go and use it. Would you recommend somebody to do that? I mean, I, I think on one hand, it's, it's undeniable that, that these things, um, they provide a, a quick way of going to market, you know, or at least having a prototype. And, and I'm all for that personally. So this brings to mind a related question. So not quite the same thing, which is how do we know that an app is good? So as you say, right, like the, the reason we want an off-the-pack app is because uh, it's fast, right? And then, but if it's fast, then how do we know it's good? And I think normally the, the, un the answer that people have to that is, well, we'll just test it. You know, we'll just go out and we'll just run some analytics and we'll test it. I think that's all fine and dandy. But what often happens is, so when you use this kind of app, and you go out to market and you get maybe a thousand users in and then you look at how they drop and where the bounce rate is and blah. So this is quantitative data and it helps you to understand a lot about what people are doing. So yes, it can help you to identify problems. Obviously, if your bounce rate is really high, you know something is wrong. But what our approach, which is the, the UX design approach, is more focused on is the why. So for example, like if a bounce rate is high, why is it high? And that's something that often um, the data provided that these by these apps and these analytics can't really answer. So that's where part of the value that we that's part of the value that we provide as well. I would say that as someone who's used Shopify before, for example, like if you want to use Shopify as the basis for for your e-commerce website, I think go for it. But I think people underestimate how complex the process is even when they use Shopify. For example, right, if I, if I use Shopify and I have 10 items to, to, to put on, it seems quite simple. But then I get to the point where I have to describe the items or I have to, you know, I describe the items or I have to categorize the items. And that is where UX design then comes in. 
then we have to think about you know what kind of categorization makes sense to people. You know, if we are selling Lego blocks, for example, color is probably going to be important. But if we are selling cars, is color important? Probably not. All kinds of things like these are considerations. So I would say, I don't mind if people use uh, like like I th I think it's a good thing for people to get into this, but that would not obviate the need for user research. Like even with template shops, some template shops are better than others, and often the 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 difference between those is how well the shop understands what its users need. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how can they do so? I think probably the best way is to write us an email. So our email address is hello at reassemble.io or you can visit our LinkedIn page and we have a Facebook page as well. So uh, you can also visit our website, which is uh, reassemble.io and that's where we walk people through a little bit about, about our process and some of the work that we've done for our clients. Okay, thank you very much, right, Wilson. Thank you so much, Neville. Thank and you. we'll keep in touch. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Wilson, for that brief and educational look at UX design. You demonstrated a depth of knowledge on the topic with great explanations. I expect this will encourage more entrepreneurs and SMEs to consider making UX design considerations an early addition in the design process, which will increase the chances of a successful product launch. We wish you all the best. This brings us to the end of this episode of Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now we need you to hit the subscribe button and head over to asiabizstories.com for more great information on how to take your inspiration and turn it into action. Thanks again, and we look forward to having you join us next time on Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action.